Broadstone Station in Dublin, Ireland, creaked, clanked and clattered with the din of everyday rail traffic. In 19th century Ireland, it was one of the grandest buildings in the country's capital, and every day hundreds of people worked to ensure that its trains, serving over 500 miles of track from one coast of Ireland to the other, were running as efficiently as they could. It was an imposing machine that stood on the hillside of the sea, pulsing away day after day. In 1856, however, it became famous for more than just its trains and vast profits, when the cashier was found dead, locked in an office full of money. The investigation that followed struggled to solve the mystery for a full year, with the conclusion that pretty much no one who had followed the case, which was more or less the whole of Dublin, would find satisfactory. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark History Season 6, Episode 11. I'm Ben and I hope this episode finds you very well. There's not much to talk about this week, just I'm going to give you a little quick heads up that coming up in the next week or two, uh, on the 17th, is Dark History's 5th anniversary. I've been doing this for 5 whole years, which feels like madness. And finally, the episode five book will be going on sale to celebrate the fifth year. So episode five book will be on sale uh, from the 17th. So that's pretty cool. But yeah, aside from that, I think that's about all the news for this week. So let's just crack straight into it. Let's get going. Uh, This is The Murder of George Little and the Broadstone Mystery. The 18th and 19th centuries were a tumultuous period in Ireland, with over a hundred years of extreme contrasts as great change accelerated through the wealthier cities, whilst intense poverty festered in rural hamlets. The capital city of Dublin, situated on the east coast of Ireland, had been completely overhauled throughout the 18th century, an economic boom fuelled by the influx of Protestant migrants from England who created an elite ruling class in the city, happy to lord over the downtrodden Catholics and less well-off Protestants, had forged a new city. Georgian suburbs cropped up to house the new class of lawyers, doctors and politicians, and Dublin grew in both population and architectural affluence. By the end of the 18th century, it had secured itself as the wealthiest, most important city on the country's east coast, whilst much of the west fell dangerously behind. This led to an influx of economic migrants moving into the city and the formation of Dublin's first bona fide slums creating a contrast that would extend in a big way throughout the next century. The start of the 19th century dealt a blow to Dublin with the Act of Union that passed in 1801, uniting the countries of England, Scotland and Ireland under the banner of Great Britain and Ireland. The move abolished the Irish Parliament and moved Irish representation to Westminster, effectively eroding the city's importance overnight, opening a drain that would suck out the wealthier citizens who followed the politicians to England, putting the city into a decline that would continue throughout most of the century. By the 1840s, the streets of Dublin had become flooded with poverty as rural migration saw the establishment of several slums, a situation that was only exacerbated by the great famines of the 1840s that swept through the country, bringing with it intense difficulties. The five years between 1846 and 1851 saw Ireland's overall population shrink by almost 25% as blight struck the harvests and crops failed. People who were already suffering under their Anglo-Irish absentee landlords died of starvation or emigrated out of the country. 
In contrast, Dublin saw its population grow even further as desperate people from the west of Ireland moved to the city in their droves. Despite overcrowding, poverty and a feverish political situation, things did manage to improve for some. Dublin gained an emerging middle class as the Catholic Emancipation Act opened up new opportunities for the dominant Roman Catholic population, and prosperity, at least on the surface, slowly began returning to the city, creating a stark contrast with the impoverished underbelly. The arrival of the Irish Academy of Music and the Natural History Museum were a reflection of the thriving culture, whilst bridges, trams and gasworks were all symbols of the leaps in industrial engineering that were transforming the city's infrastructure. It was a city that juxtaposed some of the poorest conditions in Europe with modern industrial advancement, which, while slower than in Belfast, still forged ahead at its own pace. In 1845, the Midland Great Western Railway Company began constructing a rail line west across the country, which would, by 1851, extend all the way from Dublin in the east to Galway in the west. In Dublin, the company's 538 miles of track terminated at Broadstone, a large, monolithic granite building that had been built a year earlier in 1850. Its neo-Egyptian facade, angular and imposing, dominated the local area and served as a grand testimony to the rail company's wealth. Serving Central Ireland and connecting to the nearby Royal Canal, also owned by the rail company, its cargo was a lucrative mix of cattle and livestock, industrial goods and human traffic. Every day, its emerald green locomotives drifted in and out of the station, pulling car after car from the bustling platforms that heaved with the commotion as engineers, clerks, painters, carpenters, accountants, station masters, ticket masters, handymen and maids all flowed through the station's buildings, keeping the wheels turning. Passengers walking into the throng were greeted by a three-storey high entrance hall capped off with a large glass dome that let daylight shine down through the brightly painted building, decorated with alcoves, pillars and ornate ironwork. Its labyrinthine corridors, weaved away from the central entrance hall, perforated with doorways to ticket halls, administrative offices and function rooms, whilst two large doors stood in the centre, opening out to the platforms. Despite all the difficulties of living in Dublin for all but the richest, it was a city with relatively low level of violent crime, and reports of murder were several magnitudes lower than the cities of England, especially London, just over the water. In 1856, however, one murder ripped through the city that would create an excitement to rival even the most sensational of London murders. For all its grandeur, Broadstone was about to become internationally famous for something quite aside from its granite stonework, and a far sight darker besides. The morning of the 13th of November 1856 was a cold autumnal affair. The hot, dry summer of that year had long since passed and a still grey sky lay flat across the city of Dublin as George Little made his way across the city to work in Broadstone Station. At 42 years old, George was a quiet man and devoutly religious. He was once described as as unoffending a creature as ever breathed. He had grown up in Dublin, in reasonably humble surroundings, despite his father working as a solicitor. The eldest of the four little children, George was sent to Trinity College on the family's savings, but his father died when he was 15 years old, leaving his mother a widow with no income of her own. His younger brother, James, worked as an engineer but had already left Ireland and was now living in Canada and so he was forced to leave school without graduating and take a job to support the family. 
He lived in Dublin with his mother, his aunt and his sister Kate, who had also been widowed at an early age. He joined the Great Midwestern Railway in 1853 as a clerk, but through his diligent hard work had managed to earn himself a promotion to the station's cashier. It was a job that came with a great deal of responsibility, as it was up to George to record all money taken in ticket sales, as well as prepare the wages for the numerous station staff. His small office on the third floor saw fairly large sums of money pass through the station on a daily basis, and the previous cashier had been sacked after he had been caught out embezzling money from the company. His promotion had been a testament to how well he was thought of by the station bigwigs, and he paid back their trust by keeping strict accounts. When he arrived at work at 9am that morning, he sat down at the desk by the fireplace and got ready for a day that he hoped would not keep him too much past his designated hours. He was used to working overtime by now, and at times it would be gone 10pm before he'd be able to close the office safe, tidy his desks and wrap up for the day. An hour after he arrived, his young assistant, William Chamberlain, arrived in the office and took his seat at the lectern opposite George's desk. Although the office was a decent size, it had recently been split into two by a wooden counter, topped with a railing that acted as a barrier, adding some additional security to the sums of cash that frequently sat on George's desk. In fact, that Thursday saw an especially large sum of cash being portioned off into the neat stacks and piles around the desk as George realised that with a heavy sigh that tonight was going to be another late one. That week had been the mulling affair and much of the livestock had been transported via the great Midwestern trains, leaving George with a bumper haul of takings to sort through, totalling somewhere in the region of £1,500 in notes, gold and silver. Aside from the usual drop-offs of cash boxes from the station porter, William McCauley, the day passed more or less without event and George and William sat in the office quietly trudging through their work. In the afternoon, an elderly Jewish spectacle salesman had wound up in the office trying to hawk his wares, but after trying a pair on, George had ushered him away. Just before 5pm, when George should have been tidying out to go home, he was visited by a local builder named William Tuff, who came in to see George from time to time to cash cheques. That evening, he cashed a cheque for £104, 5 shillings and 3 pence, and then George saw both him and William out of the office, locking the door behind them as they left. George had started locking himself in the office recently, as ten days before, a stranger had walked into the office late one night looking for the chief engineer. It hadn't seemed a particularly threatening situation, but it had opened George's eyes to how vulnerable he could potentially be alone in the office late at night. Turning back to the dim room, warm under the glow of the gas lamp, George took in the money still left on the desk. He estimated that he'd be working for at least another two or three hours and so, with a sigh, he resigned himself to finishing the task. It was gone seven when the station housekeeper, Anne Gunning, began her rounds, checking on the station offices and ensuring that the housemaid, Catherine Campbell, had done her job up to scratch. Both Anne and Catherine lived in the living quarters in the basement of the station. Anne lived with her husband, Bernard Gunning, the assistant storekeeper for the station's mechanics and engineers. When Anne reached the third floor, she noticed light still creeping out of George's office, shining through the keyhole and reflecting on the wall opposite. This was fairly common, but she tried the handle all the same and found the door locked. She shrugged and turned to leave. Ordinarily, when Mr Little had been working late, he would call out to her that he had not yet finished his work, but she hadn't heard anything. Nevertheless, there was little she could do if the door was locked, 
and not wanting to disturb the cashier any further, she went on about her rounds. As slowly, the station wound down for the night and the commotion of the day passed over to the silence of the night. The platforms casually overseen by John King, the night watchman. The next morning started early as usual in Broadstone. The first train slowed into the station before sunrise, the clang of the wheels coming to rest, echoing from the cold steel track across the station platforms. Mr Bennett, the clerk of the company secretary, made his way up to the cashier's office, as he did every Friday morning, to drop off the cheques from the following few days. On that particular morning, however, he found the office still locked. It was pretty unusual for George to be late to work. He wasn't usually known for his drinking, but he went on about his business, dropping the cheques into the office of Patrick Moan, the engineer's clerk. It wasn't until lunchtime that he thought fit to mention this to his superior, the company secretary, that George Little had not been in his office that morning. Ruffled by the news, the secretary sent an office junior out to George's home to check on him. He too thought it strange that George would not show up for work, and the pang of mistrust that he had felt ever since the last cashier had defrauded the company was enough to push him into action. As it turned out, the junior crossed paths with Kate, George's sister, who was at exactly the same time headed to the station looking for her brother, who had not come home from work the night before. When Kate arrived at the company's secretary's office and explained her concern, the pair marched up to his office for themselves. Kate panicked for her brother's health and the secretary for his company's money. Outside the office, standing in the hallway, the pair bumped straight into George's assistant, William. William explained that he'd not seen George since he'd arrived at 10 that morning, and though he'd tried to get the key from the housekeeper, he'd been told that George was the only one who had the key to the door. In usual circumstances, George would have left the key on the lock on the outside of the door, all valuables having been locked away in the safe at the back of the room, but that morning, it had been missing. Now, deeply concerned that his cashier had done a bunk with the week's takings, the secretary started to really panic and called for the messenger boy to go and find Mr Brophy, a carpenter, to come up to the office and force the door open. When he returned, the messenger boy suggested that he could probably climb out of the window by the back staircase and walk across the platform roof. From there, he could climb into the room that way. And he left the carpenter, attempting to jimmy the lock as he clambered out onto the roof. It had been a fairly easy climb, but when he arrived at George's office window, he found the sash nailed shut and the blind drawn. Attempting to peer around the side, all he could make out was that the cashier's gas lamp still seemed to be burning. Now, also beginning to fear for George's health, the secretary ordered Mr Brophy out onto the roof to try and help the messenger force the window. From the hallway, the crack of the wooden window sill being forced was followed by the sounds of boots landing heavily into the office on the other side of the door, followed by the muffled but acutely panicked voice of the carpenter. He is here, lying dead. There is no key in the door. The door swung open with a slam as several clerks were ordered to force the door, exposing the office interior to the small crowd that had gathered in the third floor hallway. Inside, they saw the usual neat, tidy office of George Little, stacks of money piled up on the desk, and the cashier laying face down on the floor in a pool of blood. One of the secretary's first concerns was securing the cash from George's desk, so he ordered Archibald Moore, a clerk from one of the offices opposite, to gather it up and secure it in his own office. Though there was no obvious sign of a struggle or forced entry, it was important both to let the police and the company know how much cash, if anything at all, had gone missing. 
He then ordered that no one should touch the body and waited for the doctor to arrive, who he'd already sent for. A second coincidence of the day arose shortly after when, as the secretary had sent for the doctor, George's cousin, Wensley Jennings, himself a doctor, arrived on the third floor looking for George after hearing that he'd not returned home the night before and was possibly sick. Shocked to find out that rather than being sick, his own cousin had actually been murdered, Dr Wensley Jennings made the initial inspection of the body, but perhaps understandably given the close relation, stepped aside once Dr Barker arrived. George Little was laying on his front, one of his arms was underneath his body, whilst the other was sprawled out on the floor in front of him. His neck had a large gash, which had spilled a vast amount of blood out onto the matted floor. The doctor found a small knife on the desk, a pocket knife and a pair of scissors in the desk drawer, and a small piece of cloth described as a napkin or handkerchief covered in blood. There was still no sign of the door key, which most of the workers had suspected would have been found in George's pockets. Dr Barker concluded that given the lack of any signs of struggle, the hundreds of pounds that had been left on the desk, untouched, and the fact that the door had been locked from inside, it was almost definitely a suicide. Eventually, after the doctor was ready to leave the building, the police were finally sent for, though by that time the crime scene had been stamped over and poured at by just about all the clerical staff in the station. News of the murder managed to hit the press that afternoon and the papers repeated the line that all present were left of absolutely no doubt that it was a case of determined self-destruction. Despite his throat being reported to have been literally severed from side to side and almost amputated, no one seemed to question how George was supposed to have achieved a wound so deep upon himself with the small penknife that had been found in the room nor how the knife had managed to remain completely clean, with not a spot of blood anywhere on the blade or handle. At the same time the story was going to print in the evening editions, the Dublin coroner, John Elliot Hindburn, was arriving on the scene at Broadstone and was hastily arranging an inquest. Much to the dismay of the station officials, who were hoping for a quick resolution of the situation, he confirmed that it was going to be all but impossible to assemble a full jury for that evening. So instead, he scheduled it for the next day, downstairs in the station's large conference room. The process began with the jury being marched upstairs to view the body. Once they'd carried out this ugly step, they returned to the inquest, whilst Dr Wensley Jennings set about performing a post-mortem on his own cousin on the office desk. The inquest kicked off quietly enough. It was confirmed that George had been an upstanding member of staff with a squeaky clean record and pristine accounts. It was then that, in quite spectacular fashion, Dr Jennings burst into the room, insisting his need to interrupt the proceedings. With every eye in the room upon him, he relayed his findings from the post-mortem examination. After he had shaved George's head, it became absolutely clear that the cashier had been violently attacked and several bruises had formed across his skull. Quite convinced that this would have been a feat beyond the cashier to inflict these injuries upon himself, he concluded that George Little had, without a doubt, been murdered. There was an incised wound over the eyebrow. There were five wounds higher up the forehead, three wounds on the left cheek, a deep wound above the left ear and a deep wound to the front of the same ear, the pupil of the right eye smaller than that of the left, a deep wound on the vertex, seven wounds on the back of the head, one of them being crucial. The tip of the right ear was nearly cut off. There was a wound on the front of the throat, extending across about five inches in length from below the level of the left ear to an inch and a half beyond the centre line of the neck. 
the external and internal jugular veins of the left side were divided, the carotid artery on the left side partially divided or nicked. The esophagus was divided, as were also the muscles in front of the spine to the bone. There was a light abrasion on the left shin, but not recent. On removing the scalp, the doctor found a large quantity of blood effused under it, just over the vertex or left temple. On examining the skull, he found an indentation of the frontal bone in its centre, a depressed fracture immediately over the right eyebrow, a fracture extended from this to another fracture in the left temple bone, the entire of the left temple bone and the greater part of the left parietal bone and the contiguous portion of the occipital bone were broken into small pieces. The membranes and substance of the brain were lacerated in this situation. The right hand was clenched and the left hand open. I am of the opinion that the head was cut and fractured by a heavy weapon and the throat cut after by a sharp instrument. I imagine he was struck the side of his head. I consider he was struck while sitting at the desk in a stooping position. Once the room settled down, the coroner ordered the jury back through the station for a second look at the body. In this new light, the question of the money found on the desk came into play, though the station secretary confirmed that £1,100 were found in the office and all of it had been present and correct and perfectly accounted for. William, George's assistant, confirmed to the inquest that a bent poker found in the room by the fireplace had already been bent prior to the murder and had already been bent prior to the murder, and William Hughes, the constable that had inspected George's body, confirmed that the only item found on the body had been a pair of glasses, some small change, a watch key, and a pocket watch that had stopped at 7.20. An uneasy picture had formed over the inquest, as the jury promptly returned their conclusion that a murder had been carried out on the premises by a person or persons unknown. The big problem for the officials, however, was that nearly everything about the situation was completely unknown. How had the murderer got through the station unseen? How had he escaped from a locked room? Where was the key? And why had he left over a thousand pounds in notes, gold and silver, sitting out on the table, completely untouched? Some form of revenge killing could have been a possible motive, but everyone that knew George seemed to think that he had no enemies to speak of. What appeared to the police as a complicated conundrum was of course nothing short of a sensation for the press, who sat about posing the same questions to the public at the first opportunity, with their only firm conclusion being that the murderer was, rather tantalisingly, almost definitely an employee at the station and very possibly even an acquaintance of the victim himself. The following day, on Sunday the 16th of November, the body of George Little was finally removed from the station and laid to rest under a heavy atmosphere of shock and confusion. Monday the 17th of November saw the investigation into the murder beginning proper as the station's full staff returned to work and the police drafted in heavy reinforcements in order to carry out fingertip searches of the entire station. The searches did manage to turn up a few promising leads a few red marks on the doorframe of the ticket office downstairs and another on the arrivals gate from the platforms, as well as a footprint in the dust of the stool in front of the window in George's office. No one could confirm whether or not the red marks were blood, so a carpenter was called to remove the section of wood from the frame so that it could be sent away for analysis, whilst the footprint on the stool seemed to confirm the police's suspicion that the killer likely escaped out of the window and across the platform roof. The footprint seemed to bear a good resemblance to a hobnailed boot, often worn by an engineer or workman in the station, and whilst this was something, 
it didn't narrow things down too much. One thing that the police continued to be sure about was that the killer almost definitely did not leave the station by train, as too many people, including the station master, would have seen them bored. Besides, they were still convinced that the killer likely either lived on the Broadstone estate or in one of the nearby workers' houses. The biggest stir-up for the investigation came later in the day, however, when the accountants confirmed that the money in George's office was not tallying as they had originally thought. It became clear after the money had been checked several times that a sum of around £183 in gold and £140 in silver was missing, making the deficit at least £331, well over 15 years' wages for the average Irish labourer at the time. In a matter of days, the case had gone from one of suicide to a brutal murder and robbery with no solid leads as to who the killer might be. The press were keen to point out the police laziness and questioning why on earth no one had managed to see anyone cutting off hundreds of pounds of gold and silver weighing somewhere in the region of 25 kilograms. And this was all from an office at a time when foot traffic around the station would have been at its quietest. The next day saw some relief for the police as more reinforcements arrived allowing them to undertake the arduous task of interviewing every single station employee. The leads on the case also took the unusual step of forbidding anyone to speak to the press, locking down information tightly in the hopes of preventing any information getting to the killer, preventing any sort of covert investigation. For every step forward in their organisation of the investigation, however, the police suffered an equal trip and a reward was publicly offered for information regarding the killer. George's family offered £150 and the railway company chipped in another 200 a move that the police looked upon with disdain, fearing the influx of false information. And sure enough, they didn't have to wait too long, as by the end of the day, they found themselves chasing a lead that involved a group of two men and a woman who had been seen in a pub on Friday night discussing something in low tones. At the end of their conversation, the woman was said to have whipped out a wallet containing a sum of money of at least a couple of hundred pounds. The police were sceptical, but they were forced to follow it up. It took them several days to track down the trio, a man named Hugh Collins and a husband and wife, Patrick and Catherine Cullen. The police brought them into the station, but no one was able to confidently ID them, and William, George's assistant, was pretty sure that he'd not seen any of them in the cashier's office before. All three said that they'd not even been in Dublin for well over a month, and Catherine Cullen was also insistent that the sum of cash that she had had in her wallet on Friday night totaled the grand sum of £3. A far cry from three hundreds. Collins was eventually let go, whilst Patrick and Catherine were remanded in custody for a week, but they too were eventually let free when it became more clear that there was really nothing pinning them to the murder at all. Fortunately, in the time it had taken the police to track down that bogus lead, the police back at Broadstone had been keeping themselves busy in the search for a murder weapon. On Wednesday morning, the canal that ran alongside Broadstone was drained and the muddy bottom searched by hand. It had been a big operation, shutting down the canal, building a temporary dam and employing over 150 of the workmen from the station to chip in with the search. But it paid off in the early afternoon when a Mr Crofton stumbled upon an 18-inch long hammer sticking out of the mud, half buried in sludge, and whilst the press differed on how much there was a certain amount of human hair still lodged in a crack in the handle. Two hours later, the police were thrown a further line when a razor was also found. 
Both weapons were taken into the station for analysis and it was discovered that the hammer was a type used by the station fitters and had not only originated from the station store but had actually been manufactured by the station blacksmith. The blacksmith confirmed that he had made the hammer and also that it hadn't actually ever been used for its original purpose, suggesting that if it was the weapon used in the attack, it had been taken from the store recently, specifically for the attack. There was, unfortunately, only really one way for the police to be sure that the hammer was the one used in the attack, and so Friday morning saw the exhumation of George's body. By the graveside, the head of the hammer, alongside several other random hammers for comparison purposes, were lined up with the fractures in George's skull. It was a pretty crude test, but it was enough for the police, who were happy to confirm to the papers later that day that they had found the hammer that had been used in the attack. If they were hoping for some praise, however, they would be sorely disappointed, as by now most of the press had turned pretty resolutely against the investigation. Potentially in revenge for being cut out of the loop, they'd spent most of the week criticising the police for acting too slowly and for their distinct lack of suspects. This wasn't entirely true, however. The police did have suspects. They were just having difficulty pinning them to the crime. Amongst them were three prime suspects, all of which were employed at the station. Mr McCauley was the station cash porter and was in and out of George's office routinely to drop off the cash boxes for counting. He knew his way around the station, knew George's office intimately and would have openly been invited into the office by George, even late at night. The police had also managed to ascertain that he was in the building on Thursday night at the time of the murder. His alibi was a mixed bag as he had been seeing off the 745 mail train on a station platform which was fairly easy to confirm. However, after that, he said he had spent about an hour alone in the coal shed before returning home to sleep at 9pm. The second suspect, and the favourite of many, was Mr Bernard Gunning, Anne Gunning's husband. Bernard lived with Anne in the Broadstone basement living quarters. His wife had good access to the station at all hours and Bernard was the assistant storekeeper, meaning he would have had easy access to any tools, such as a fitter's hammer, whenever he wanted. The police also decided upon visiting their apartment that they appeared to be living beyond their means and had furniture and decorations that seemed just a little too fancy for people of their class. Bernard's alibi was similarly a mixed bag. He had spent the evening in town visiting friends and drinking in a local pub and returned to his home in the station around 11pm, which was confirmed by the night watchman who let him in. As for the hammer, he claimed to know nothing about it, nor who might have taken it from the store, and told the police that another assistant, William Miller, was in charge of doling out the tools to workers. The third suspect was perhaps their weakest. Patrick Moan worked as a clerk in the engineer's department in the office opposite George, which was pretty much the only way the police could tie him to the murder, aside from the fact that they thought that he appeared to be not entirely honest during his questioning. He claimed to not really know George particularly well and had spent the evening of the murder arranging a dinner do for a recent staff leaver in a local pub and then returned home to bed. It was, all told, a pretty weak selection of suspects by anyone's standards and things were not made any easier for the police after their questioning of William Miller who told them that he did not keep any records of who had taken what tools from the store nor when, making what had been one of their most promising leads yet nothing more than a winding path to a further dead end. The razor was turning into a similar story too. 
police had managed to trace it to a knife sharpening shop in Dublin, owned by John Flanagan, who was convinced he had serviced the razor only two weeks before the murder. His son, who had also worked in the store with his father, had been able to describe the case that it had been bought into in pretty minute detail, and he had even been able to supply the police with a pretty good description of the owner. A man wearing a brown frock coat with pockets in front. He had on a cap with a button on the centre of the crown. He had a dirty face, as if he'd been working in a forge, and full of darkish whiskers, which nearly met at the chin. It was, for all its detail, sadly, a good description for any number of the Broadstone workers, and so as much as it had been a more fruitful lead than the hammer, it had still driven the investigation to something of a dead end. It put the police in a difficult position with the public, who, according to one paper, were talking of nothing else in the streets and spending all their free time making anxious inquiries into the latest intelligence. In lieu of any hard facts, what with the press being pushed out of the police investigation, the newspapers had been all too happy to provide this voracious public with any story they could get their hands on. And as such, many of the stories were getting more fanciful and critical of the police day by day. By Friday, a full week had passed since the murder and the police were no closer to finding out who the killer was, how he had escaped, the location of the stolen money or of the missing office key. Perhaps, out of some desperation, the police decided to have Bernard Gunning, along with Patrick Moan, put under covert surveillance, as well as the more unusual step of placing Catherine Campbell, the Gunning's servant and the station maid, into protective custody as they believed that she was perhaps being dishonest during her interviews and that they were convinced that she had more to tell them concerning the Gunnings. The second week of the investigation kicked off with more false leads. The police had deemed a clerk named John Jolly to have been suspicious enough during his interview to be further investigated. However, it turned out that he'd simply been trying to cover up the fact that he'd spent the evening of the murder pawning a pair of trousers. Meanwhile, across the water in Liverpool, England, a drunk in a pub had been kicking up a storm by shouting about killing a man in Ireland with a hammer. He was promptly arrested and questioned, but it turned out that he had been suffering from alcohol poisoning and in the midst of a psychotic episode. Back in Dublin, things were not looking much brighter. A massive search had been undertaken of the station in an attempt to find the missing cash. The station handyman, James Spollin, easily recognisable from the fact that he had only one eye, had been tasked with inspecting the roof to look for an escape route, but he'd found nothing of any note. As a true sign of how desperate the state of the investigation had become, Scotland Yard were called in to help by midweek, and Detective Inspector Henry Smith and Jack Witcher, who would go on to be the main detective tasked with unravelling the Hill House murder case four years later, arrived in the city to much interest. Meanwhile, Rumours were openly circulating that the police were gearing up to make an arrest. No names were mentioned in the press, but on the street it was common knowledge that the number one suspect was Bernard Gunning, which made for an awkward working environment for the storekeeper, who continued on with his job amidst all the suspicious stares from the other workers. As the days passed, however, and no arrest came, rumours began to spiral out of control culminating with the story that a senior official had called in a French spirit medium to assist the police, though they'd failed to realise that she could not speak English and had not provided an interpreter, so the only fact that they'd been able to ascertain was that the killer was apparently still in the, bil- still in the building. It wasn't until mid-December when things would get any more grounded, when a discovery was made that would finally give the police a fresh and promising new lead. 
By mid-December, a full month had passed since the murder, and very little in the way of hard facts had been divulged to the public by the investigation. The Scotland Yard detectives were gearing up to return to London after achieving practically nothing, and some elements of the press had started naming the case the Broadstone Farce, rather than the Broadstone Tragedy, as it had been referred to until now. In secret, however, the police were feeling quietly confident. A shift in outlook that had originated on Tuesday the 11th of December, when James Brophy, the foreman of the carriage department, had made a startling discovery. Tasked with retrieving a wicker basket from the loft space in a boiler shed for one Mrs Carby, the wife of the chief engineer, who had stored it up there years before, Brophy had hauled the basket down into the workshop, only to discover that a sopping wet bag of silver coins had been dumped inside the basket. Superintendent Guy, who had been overseeing the investigation, rushed over to check it out and found a workshop buzzing with excitement. The find had been the talk of the estate, and half of the station's workmen had crammed themselves in to see the hall for themselves. The bag was taken away as evidence, and later identified by Kate, George's sister, as a bag that she had made for him several months earlier for storing cash in. In total, it had contained £43, 17 shillings and sixpence in silver coins, and now almost certainly confirmed the police suspicion that the killer was a workman of Broadstone. If the discovery of the money was exciting for the public, however, it was nothing compared to how the investigation leads were feeling when they were alerted to the news that Catherine Campbell had decided to revise her statement to the police from her safe house in police custody. She told police that she had been persuaded to tell the truth, that she had lied in her original statement by her priest during a confessional. In this revised statement, she told them that she had seen Bernard Gunning milling about in the back of the station on the night of the murder, between 6 and 7pm, as well as seeing both of the Gunnings throughout the station skulking about for the rest of that night. This would not have been completely damning in itself, but she then went on to say that she had been cleaning the office directly below George Little's at around 7.15pm when she had heard footsteps on the ceiling above. In her original statement, she had mentioned the footsteps, but said that they were of George's, a fact that she had been sure of due to her recognising the sound of George Little's boots. Now, however, she changed the story and said that the footsteps had belonged not to George, but to Bernard Gunning. This, she said, had been impossible for her to divulge during the inquest, as she had been standing next to both Bernard and Anne Gunning, who were not only her bosses, but also the masters of her living quarters. It was enough to give the police cause for excitement, despite the fact that her evidence would unlikely be admissible in court since she had already lied during her testimony at the inquest. Still, it ended the year with a feeling of momentum for the investigation, though not everyone at the head of the operation was convinced. There were small discrepancies in Catherine's statements and they were enough to hold off an immediate arrest of Bernard Gunning. As the new year rolled in, however, and opened up to January of 1857, the police finally felt that they were getting somewhere, and many thought they could happily double down on Bernard Gunning as their prime suspect. As January continued, and no arrests were made, Catherine made another confession to the police. She extended her story still further by saying that she had forgot to mention that she had seen Anne Gunning remove the lining of her husband's coat on the day after the murder, and that she had also seen her washing a shawl that had been stained red with blood. Although Bernard had already been subject to extended surveillance, he was now feeling more direct, open pressure, as officers visited him at work to question him about his coat on several occasions. 
They repeated the same questions with Anne too, and though the couple insisted that the lining on Bernard's jacket had been altered some time before, both parties had made a mess of tying down precisely when, changing their answers to have been from between three months to two years before the murder. The evidence that the police were collecting against the Gunnings may have been flimsy, but the couple were not doing much to help their case either. What's more, during the detective's first visit to question Bernard, he had been in the middle of scrubbing his jacket with turps, trying to remove several dark stains on the sleeves. The coat was confiscated and sent to the Royal College of Surgeons for analysis, and the surveillance on the couple continued, though it was all starting to feel like Gunning was only a suspect in the absence of anything more promising. The press were really starting to lose patience with the police too, calling the investigation utterly paralysed. The detectives now confess that they have altogether failed in accomplishing anything towards the discovery of the guilty party, but they have done a great deal towards fixing suspicion on the innocent. Reports were also starting to drip out with the news that many of the reinforcements drafted in at the start of the investigation had long since left the station and questions were being asked of who exactly was in charge since some sort of crisis of leadership seemed to be being carried out amongst the officials at the top of the investigation who couldn't make their mind up on whether they should or should not arrest Bernard Gunnings. The days in January ticked by and the news slowly turned to other matters as winter turned to spring and the investigation, seemingly having stalled entirely, was reported as having been officially suspended by some Dublin papers who were thought to have sources from inside the station. Then, as the days were beginning to grow longer and the sun began beating down for the start of summer, a remarkable stroke of fortune turned the entire investigation on its head when a young woman strolled into the Crown Solicitor's office and told him that she knew who the Broadstone murderer was. She could be so confident, she said, as she was married to him. The spring of 1857 had been a particularly cold one in Dublin and it wasn't until June that things finally began to warm up. Likewise, the Broadstone murder case had been equally frosty throughout the early months of the year, stalling to the point of suspension. Then, on Wednesday the 24th of June, a young woman named Mary Spollin paid a visit to the Crown Solicitor with some pretty big accusations. The Spollins lived in a small cottage on the Broadstone estate with their three children, 10-year-old Lucy, 13-year-old Joseph and 16-year-old James Spollin Jr., James Spollin worked at the station as a general handyman and was, in fact, known to the police already. James Spollin was the one-eyed worker who the police had recruited to check out the roof on the platform outside George Little's office right back at the start of the investigation, and his report that there were no signs of anything unusual on the roof had led them to close down that particular line of inquiry. Mary had visited the police to tell them that she not only was fearful of her life, accusing her husband of trying to poison her, but she also accused him of being the Broadstone murderer. On the night of the murder, Mary said that she had seen James carrying a large bucket full of gold and silver, and when she had asked him about it, he had straight up told her that he had stolen it from the cashier's office after killing the cashier. He then went on to burn George's pocketbook, a small notebook that he had always kept on his person in order to track low-value IOUs for various workers at the station, along with a cravat. The jacket they had worn during the attack, she told police, was not cleaned nor disposed of, but rather James had simply painted over the bloodstains and continued to wear it. The hammer was almost undoubtedly owned by James, but she said that the razor was not likely the real murder weapon, as she did not recognise it. 
In truth, this was not far from the police's own beliefs anyway. They had begun to have doubts over the razor themselves and were suspicious that one of the workers had conveniently found it in the mud in order to claim the bonus that had been offered to their day rate as a reward for finding anything to help in the case. The missing key that had still not been located, she said, had been tossed into a nearby field. When the police asked her why she had suddenly decided to turn her husband into the police, she told them that ten days prior she'd fallen ill with symptoms of poisoning and James, for whatever reason, had threatened the children that if they were to visit a doctor or priest and bring them to their mother's aid, he would murder them. Fortunately, her children had disobeyed their father, but now Mary was afraid of what he might do next. The accusations were exciting for the police, but at the same time, they placed them in a difficult position. At that time in Ireland, a woman could not testify against her husband in court, as once a couple were married, they were, in effect, a single entity. All evidence derived from Mary would therefore likely be inadmissible in a trial, and so they would have to find another avenue for tying the murder to him, something more solid. For a case that had stalled for so long, the sudden flurry of activity was practically mind-bending in its pace. At 9.30am, Superintendent Guy and Inspector Ryan strolled casually into the railway workshop and arrested James Spollin, and at the same time took James Jr., who worked as an apprentice fitter at Broadstone, into custody too, hoping that he could verify Mary's claims. Whilst that was happening, Mary took the detectives around the station, uncovering packages of gold and silver that she knew her husband had hid over the previous months in ever more obscure nooks and crannies including a small channel that ran underneath a set of the station's toilets. One of the buckets included a lump of hardened red lead, and when the police smashed it open with a hammer, they found a rusted brass padlock inside. They raided the couple's cottage and sent James's overalls for analysis. That evening, they opened all the packages they had uncovered throughout the day and calculated a total just shy of £200 in gold, silver, copper and decaying banknotes, some of which had been wrapped in torn bits of paper that had George Little's handwriting on it. James Senior was later interviewed, where he denied everything put to him. In a crafty plan, the police arranged for James and Mary to cross paths outside the cells of the prison, and they had instructed Mary to shout her accusations at her husband. This, they hoped, might goad James into something of a confession, but it sadly failed leaving the police at the end of the day with a host of circumstantial or non-admissible evidence, a suspect in custody, but with nothing to actually tie him to the crime. It had been a busy and successful day, but they still weren't really any closer to a conviction. The news of the arrest had ripped around Broadstone at a fantastic pace, and workers close with Spollin were all happily passing on stories of how they had seen him spying in the investigation through various gates and doorways, or of that time that he'd told everyone in the workshop that he was sure the murderer was still in Broadstone and was probably laughing at everyone for not uncovering the truth. As news of the arrest worked its way through the police who had been involved in the case, more than a few red faces appeared as they remembered Spollin's name from their earlier inquiries and of how he had been known to have varnished the wooden divide in George's office just weeks before the murder, and of how they had enlisted his help in checking out the platform rooftop. The days following the arrest continued at a breakneck pace for the investigation. The key to George's office was found in a heap of mud in the field that Mary had suggested they would find it, and the canal was drained and searched once more. This time, a second razor, its blade badly chipped, was turned up, and this time there was no denying who it belonged to, as the name Spollin had been roughly etched into the handle. 
At the same time, a preliminary hearing opened on Saturday the 27th of June, much to the excitement of the public, who queued up outside the court to see James Spollin marched onto the stand at 11.15 that morning. The local Dublin newspaper covered the hearing in minute detail and described the scene as James arrived with some relish. A man about 5 feet 8 inches in height, wiry, muscular and active, slightly bald with red hair and whiskers, which came round the chin and nearly met. His face is thin and angular, his nose prominent and aquiline, his mouth and chin well formed and his complexion pale. His forehead is rather high and indicative of considerable powers of thought. There is nothing of the usual criminal type about his head, but the loss of the right eye imparts a slightly sinister aspect to a face which otherwise would be the reverse of repulsive. Certain hard lines around the mouth, the habitual compression of that feature and the broad, strongly defined chin give an unmistakable expression of sternness and determination to the, to the prisoner's countenance. The back of the head is massive, and the general bearing of the man and the intelligent expression of his countenance indicate a class of mind superior to what might be expected from the position of life occupied by the prisoner. He was dressed in a blue pilot cloth overcoat and a white fustian working jacket, with mother-of-pearl buttons and trousers of the same material. His demeanour was quiet, cool and composed, and he answered the questions put to him in a clear, firm voice, and in a manner that proves him to be a man of high intelligence, if not of education. The conclusion of the hearing was positive for the police, as James Spollin was committed to stand for trial. However, it had not been straightforward, and Spollin's defence had reasonably successfully attacked the police for some of their more shady conduct in amassing their evidence, especially the fact that they held James Jr. against his will. In fact, James Jr. was causing trouble for the police on more than one front, as he'd refused to confirm any of his mother's story, insisting that he and his mother and father had been in town buying black puddings on the night of the murder and that he knew nothing of his father's alleged guilt. This had gone quite against his younger sister's testimony, who, to the contrary, said that she had seen her father tossing a parcel down the chimney of the old locomotive sheds opposite their house on the night of the murder, and that the cloth that had wrapped one of the parcels of money in had actually been a bonnet belonging to her that her mother had been using as a duster. It had been a hearing that had stirred mixed opinion on the guilt of the prisoner, but at the end of the day, it was the decision of the jury that had counted, and James Spollin was remanded in jail until August when his trial was set to take place amongst the August sessions. The police, knowing their case was relatively flimsy, had just a few weeks to attempt to tie the murder to Spolling conclusively, but with little plan on how to do so. The August sessions began on Friday the 7th to much public excitement. Tickets had been sold in an effort to quell any overcrowding of the courthouse for such was the interest in the case that the streets outside the court were filled all day long as people stopped by to pick up any whispers of news that might have slipped out. Small-scale models of Broadstone Station and the surrounding estate had been built and put on display in the centre of the courtroom, catching the attention of the observers as they filtered into the room and took their seats, eagerly awaiting the appearance of James Spollin. First, though, the task of assembling a jury had to be undertaken, and it took the rejection of over 50 men before a dozen had been selected for the task. Finally, at 10.15am, Spollin made his way to the bar, dressed in a smart coat, a waistcoat, and a thin silk neckerchief tied around his neck. The opening statements came first from the prosecution, who laid out their case to the jury with some trepidation. What they were about to hear, they told them, was 
a long chain of circumstantial evidence, which would have surprised some who had read the press reports that the police had a secret piece of evidence up their sleeve. The defence, meanwhile, suggested that this long chain of evidence was nothing more than a load of hearsay and rumour. The routes around the station and the layout of the offices were known to dozens, if not hundreds, of workers around the station, and despite Spollin knowing the platform roof well, due to having worked on it frequently, he had always been accompanied by handfuls of assistants. In essence, they were suggesting that the knowledge required to get in and out of the cashier's office without being seen was far from a secret, and Spollin would not have been unique in knowing the ins and outs of the station's layout. The first day would have likely ended in something of a stalemate if it hadn't been for the medical evidence that was put to the court when an expert showed the razor engraved with Spollin's name on the handle and confirmed that the chips in the blade would have been consistent with the type of attack that had killed George Little. The second day of the trial garnered just as much attention as the first and saw James's ten-year-old daughter Lucy take the stand to testify against her father. She repeated much of the story that she'd already told the police that her mother had fallen ill from a mysterious illness, very much like poisoning, and that her father had threatened to kill them if they'd gone to the doctors for help, and that she'd seen James put something round in a lump down the chimney on the night of the murder. She also confirmed her identification of the bonnet that had been used to wrap up one of the parcels of money. The defence responded by passively attacking her in efforts to not come across too harsh to the small child. They asked her to turn around and read the clock on the wall, and they showed the court that Lucy had no way of knowing what the time was, as she was completely unable to read a clock. In fact, she was really unsure of times and dates at all, and when asked if she knew if the murder had taken place towards the beginning or towards the end of the year, she was unable to provide an answer. The defence were attempting to suggest that Lucy had been coached in her answers by Mary. It was a fairly clever ploy, as when Lucy insisted that she'd never once spoken about the case or the trial with her mother in all the time that they had spent together, it was fairly natural for the jury to have felt suspicious. Mary and James's middle son, Joseph, took the stand following Lucy, and for the most part it was a repeat of the earlier questioning, except that Joseph was able to identify the padlock as one of his father's that he had used to lock oil cans. Following on from this, a locksmith was brought in to unblock the padlock's keyhole, and a key taken from Spollin during his arrest was used to unlock it, this would have been fairly dramatic if it had not been for the locksmith then explaining to the court that any key manufactured at the same time would have had the same pattern and that there probably existed thousands of identical keys and padlocks in Dublin alone. The third day saw the defence give a four-hour-long closing speech in which they meticulously picked apart the case of the prosecution, telling the court that they had strongly suspected another man for a long time but had bungled his arrest and though he never used the name of Bernard Gunning, it had become fairly common knowledge that Gunning had been a long-term suspect, and most in the courtroom would have been aware that that was who they were referring to. They pointed out the discrepancies in the children's testimonies and said that they'd been coached, but still managed to get their stories wrong, as children were prone to do. And finally, they heavily insinuated that despite all they had shown, there had not been a single piece of solid evidence which positively tied Spollin to the crime. Even the razor, which did have his name on, was not necessarily the murder weapon, and even if it was, who, suggested the defence, would have been stupid enough to commit a murder with a weapon with their own name on it? You were asked to convict him because money belonging to Mr Little was found near the place where he had worked, because an ordinary padlock was found in red lead under the money. You were asked to find him guilty of this murder because the hammer found in the canal on which fits the wound is not proved to have been his, 
and because the first razor is not shown to have been his, and another with his name scratched upon it has turned up at a subsequent search in a place where it might have been thrown by any member of his family. You were asked to come to the conclusion that he is the murderer because of a ridiculous story which the children tell of having seen him at the chimney and about a sunbonnet of a lilac colour which Julia Lyons, who is said to have made it, is not called to identify and because of some idle talk which took place on the premises. You were asked to convict him because the press in this country and in England have raised an outcry and public opinion has demanded this man as a victim. You are in, in an awfully responsible position. You are now sitting in judgment, the arbiters of the fate of this unhappy man, but before you come to a conclusion that he is guilty, you must weigh the evidence carefully and ask yourselves, does the evidence sustain this charge? If it is at all consistent with his innocence, you must acquit him. I now leave this case in your hands, gentlemen, confident that you will do your duty to your country, your God, and the prisoner at the bar. The speech closed with a handful of the audience bursting into applause, though they were quickly silenced. The closing statement at the Crown was delayed until the following morning, which meant that James Spollin had to spend a difficult night waiting to hear the verdict the following day. At 2.40pm, the jury stepped out of the court to deliberate and returned just an hour and a half later. At 4.30pm, the judge read out the verdict to the court. James Spollin was found not guilty. Finally allowed to speak at his own trial, Spollin stood up and gave a speech to the court, thanking God for his freedom in a somewhat deliriously rambling speech. The court's ruling had met a certain degree of support from the crowd outside. However, the police still thought it best to keep Spollin detained until the following day for his own protection, fearing some form of mob justice. A police guard was placed in the Spolling cottage, whilst Mary was able to arrange her affairs so that the police could transfer her and her children away from Dublin. At least, Lucy and Joseph, James Jr., had long since moved out of the cottage and elected instead to remain with his father. James Sr., having been released from prison, failed fairly spectacularly at reading the room and told the press that he wished to return to an amicable relationship with his wife and children even going as far as sending a police messenger to the cottage to ask his wife to cook some breakfast for him, a request which was promptly rejected by Mary. In what seemed to be a belief that bordered on delusion, he then visited his solicitor to inquire about setting up a public subscription fund to raise money for himself as he was now out of work. The solicitor was pretty keen to kick him out of the building, however, he had to do so via the back door, as a crowd of people less excited about his release had followed him and were now standing outside the solicitor's office, calling for his head. One might have thought that, that would have been enough for Spollin and he would have taken his solicitor's advice to get himself out of Dublin. But James had other ideas. A week later, he put on a show at the Prince Patrick's Theatre, which he advertised as a personal narrative, in which he intended to clear his name. In truth, it was nothing more than an opportunity to gather people into a room so that he could beg them for money to allow him to emigrate. It was an unusual thing to do, not least because he must have been acutely aware of his unpopularity, but also because he already had £10 to his name, which he could easily have paid for tickets to America for both him and James Jr. Like many people in Dublin did, it was very easy to assume that Spollin was simply trying to cash in and exploit the public. The press called it a shocking outrage on indecency and the theatre was forced to close the show after just one performance, which had been attended by a measly 18 people, only four of which had been members of the public and all of which had heckled him fairly heavily throughout. Within a week, he found himself arrested once more, 
this time on the charge of stealing £350 from the Great Midwestern Railway Company. Clear that he hadn't realised quite how much he had been pushing his luck by trying to raise money in Dublin, he exclaimed to the press that he'd been greatly astonished at his recapture. Confined to a cell, he spent two months awaiting the October sessions and was eventually shuffled into court on Monday the 26th of October. Somewhat ridiculously, the jury were told to pretend as if they had never heard of James Spollin before, which would have been quite a big ask of just about anyone in the city. Before his case was to be sent to trial, it would first have to be deemed worthy. If the jury believed that the prosecution didn't have a case against him, then he would be sent home free of any charges. The twelve men of the jury spent nearly two hours deciding James Spollins' fate before returning a verdict to the court of no true bill. His case was tossed out of court and all charges dropped. Once more, Spollin found himself leaving a courtroom, judged not guilty and cast a free man. This time, he chose to be somewhat wiser with his freedom. Finally realising that he was not Dublin's favourite person, he eventually skipped across the sea to Liverpool, where he had set up a plan with a bar owner there. The bar owner agreed to allow him to run his public show and present his narrative, provided that he got half the share of the ticket sales. Taking a cue from his initial trial, he even had a scale model of Broadstone Station built with which he intended to prove that he was not the murderer. It wasn't the most enticing spectacle in the city, but it did eventually attract a local doctor named Frederick Bridges. Bridges was a phrenologist and something of an eccentric. Overly excited by the shape and size of a man's skull, Bridges was convinced that he could tell the various traits and characteristics of a human based on the bones in the head and had even published a book on the subject. The popular manual of phrenology was his first step in popularising the pseudoscience, but it was the design and manufacture of his little white model heads with various traits mapped across its surface that would stand the test of time as obscure Victorian curio, if nothing else. Dr Bridges has heard that Spollin was in Liverpool and was incredibly keen to meet the man. As part of his studies, he'd taken to making casts of various criminals' heads, and believing Spollin to be a murderer, he practically throffed at the mouth in anticipation of being able to cast his head for his collection. He arranged a meeting with Spollin, who after some initial reluctance, eventually agreed to allow the doctor to cast his head, provided he would help him raise enough money to emigrate. Interestingly, during their time figuring out how they could raise enough money to pay for Spollin's fare, Bridges became reasonably friendly with the Irishman, inviting him to dinner on several occasions. However, he had already made a preliminary inspection of Spollin's head and concluded that he had all the bones of a dangerous, scheming killer. And so he concluded that all of his friendliness was simply a ruse and behind it all, he was sure to be plotting nefarious deeds. He believed it so much, in fact, that he wrote a letter to the Home Secretary begging him to fund Spollin's flight out of the country, suggesting that it was too dangerous to the population of England to have him to stay his letter was promptly ignored and Bridges was eventually forced to fund the ticket for James and his son himself. Photos were taken of Spollin, his head was cast and then, just like that, Spollin was gone. In his book on the Broadstone murder case, The Dublin Railway Murderer, author Thomas Morris believes that Spollin sailed to New York under a false name and through careful examination of the passenger lists for the final months of 1857, believed them to have signed aboard a ship named the Emerald Isle, bound for New York under the names of Charles and Thomas Lothar, as they appeared to be the only passengers that fit the correct age brackets that sailed together. Once they arrived in America, however, they disappeared forever, and all trace of the Spollins vanished. 
Mary Spollin moved out of Dublin to a nearby village in secret. She and her children were given the false surname of Doyle and paid £36 a year for life, whilst the Great Midwestern Railway Company paid the family £200 to be shared evenly amongst the Spollin children. The murder of George Little has never been officially solved. Many believe that James Spollin had almost certainly been the killer. There is much that points towards him, but no more evidence has arisen other than that with which he was tried against in 1856. Whether or not the outcome would have been different if the testimony of Mary Spollin had been accepted into the trial is anyone's guess, but it seems likely that her ability to point to so many of the hiding places that contain the gold and silver stolen from Little's office suggests that she was telling nothing but the truth. In the end, James Spollin managed to survive two trials before finally disappearing onto the streets of New York, taking the truth with him into anonymity. So there we go, that was the story of George Little and the Broadstone murder. We'll talk a little bit about that after these short advert breaks. So, quite a big story, um, quite a long story, quite a difficult one um, to work out what actually happened. So so uh, I suppose the big question there is, is really like, do we think that it was Spollen who was the murderer, right? Um, I, mean, I mean, me personally, I, I'm really not sure. I think in a sense, you almost have to say, yes, it was obviously him who was the murderer. And and I think the most obvious reason to go for that is the fact that Mary knew so much about the murder. I mean, I mean, she, I, I didn't actually include it, but she did actually um, go on to explain to the police how he even carried out the murder. And it was because that, like, basically like George, he basically said, she said, she basically said that he waited for George to leave his office. Um, and then when he'd done so, he crept into the office and hid behind the divide. And then when George came back into the office, he locked himself in and then he killed him. And then he escaped out the window going across the roof and down a ladder. Um, so she sort of knew all this stuff. And then obviously she knew the, um, that where all of the gold and silver was buried. So you have to say like, yeah, it was, almost definitely him that, 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 that done it. But if that's the case, it leaves me with a couple of questions and, and, I, and I don't think they sway me either way, really. I don't think they push me into thinking that he wasn't a murderer. But they do, they, they do raise questions. And, and, and firstly, um, like why, why did he continue forever to try and clear his name and to obsess over trying to clear his name? He'd got away scot-free like like he walked away as a free man tried as not guilty he could then stood outside the court and and told everyone that he'd done it and he wouldn't have been able to be tried again i mean he wouldn't have done that but but he could have right so there, there was no reason for him to like so adamantly go for it especially as he was leaving dublin anyway so it, that seems weird that he really hung on to this idea of clearing his name you do sort of wonder, like, why, 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 why was he so invested in going such lengths? But then, see, we're left with this um, the, 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 the um, Bridges who wanted to cast his head. And Spollin basically said, yeah, you can cast my head, but it'll be the last thing that you do before I emigrate. And we can't do it until I've got my tickets. And basically, it'll be the last thing I do in this country. So he basically, I think, had a bit of a fear of this phrenologist calling him out as a murderer um and 
I think that was because he knew deep down that he, he was the murderer and he didn't really understand that phrenology was essentially a pseudoscience and, and not that many people believed it and it was controversial. And I think he was worried that it was going to, almost like a lie detector test, sort of like prove that he was the murderer. And that's why he was like very adamant that he wouldn't do it until he was about to get on the ship and then he could cast his head, he could say what he wanted and then if he did say he was the murderer, by the time he published that, Spolin would be gone, right? Um so I think that's probably why why he, he wanted to do that. And then that obviously leads me to think, well, it was Spolin then, you know, that it was him that did the murder. Um, and I think that's probably where I, where I end up, is that it probably was Spolin. Um, I will just chuck out one theory, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think it has too many holes. But an interesting theory that I read was that, um, you know, if he'd have tried to kill Mary, which it seems he did, it seems he tried to poison her, um, before the murder, like oh, uh, 10 days before, um, she basically like was woken up in the night, um, like uh, being sick, stomach cramps, um, paralysis of the legs, things like that. It was like a poisoning, essentially. And he, he told his kids that they couldn't go to the doctor. That that seems really weird. That, that leads you to believe that it was him that poisoned her, right? If he'd have done that, maybe she feared for her life and knew that her only chance of escaping this kind of like abusive marriage that was threatening her life was to get him busted by the police and get him chucked in prison if that's the case I can see that being a motive for her to do that the only thing that goes against that then is how she knew so many details of the murder and so then you end up in like grand speculation territory if you want to run with this this theory because then you're saying like okay well maybe she was having an affair and maybe the guy who she was having an affair with was the killer or maybe she was the killer and then you know you're kind of running on these kind of very speculative strings here um, with no evidence behind them and but they're, but they're interesting to kind of think about all the same right but i think ultimately it comes back to the fact that usually the simplest answer is the one that's true, right? And the simplest answer in this case is that it, it just was spoiling. I find it really interesting how usually in these cases, especially in these time period, um, the, the 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 public opinion would probably be fairly one-sided. But in this case, it was very, very, um, seemed very evenly split. And the only time it, it seemed to not, split and it seemed to come together was when he started to sort of try and beg money out of them um and that you know sort of turned a lot of people against him but even then there were people that supported him so that again is is another interesting part of the case in the sense that it leaves you to wonder if it really was him that was the killer um I, you know there, there are a lot of suspicious things if you want to put a tinfoil hat on I think you can easily do that in this case, you know. The fact that the murder weapon was found in the canal after they'd already searched it once and hadn't found anything, and then they found it later, and it had his name on it. I mean, I am of the opinion that the guy was just not that smart, and he did do the murder with a razor that had his name on it, and that they just missed it the first time. the, the, The first search wasn't particularly well executed in that they built this dam, but the water was still leaking through. And it was, they were basically, they weren't, it wasn't like a bone dry canal. They were slopping around in like sludge and mud and like water up to their ankles. So like to not find it, I don't think it's that extreme. Although they did have 150 people searching for it, but I still think it's not that 
much of a stretch to imagine that they just just overlooked it on the first search. But if you want to put a Tim Four hat on, I think you can. I think personally that, so like I say, he 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 just probably did the murder with a with a weapon with his name on it. But that, like I say, it does lead to 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 questioning that, right? And then, and I think there are a lot of things that that do do that. Ultimately, I think I'm going to just go with the fact that he probably did do it. Um, but you know. I guess that's that's about the best we can really do is just make a decision on, on, based on what we read and and that's about it because there's nothing else we're going to get from this case. So yeah, I mean, I, I think you probably did do it. Um, let me know if you think any different. Uh, you can get in touch with me. My email address is contact at darkhistories.com. You can get in touch with me via social media. Uh, Dark Histories is on all social media, including Instagram, which is probably the easiest one to contact me on. And you can find all of those links in the show notes and on the website, darkhistories.com, as well as ways that you can support the show. If you would like to support the show, that would be grand, because uh, it's pretty much what keeps it all running. Um, but if not, obviously, um, the show's always free and, you know, it always will be. So, yeah, thanks um, very much for listening. As I mentioned at the start, it's coming up to Dark Histories' fifth anniversary, which Every time I say that, it sounds mental. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, I'm going to be doing sort of a few little bits and pieces for that. But as I said, the, the, the fifth, Dark History's fifth book, which will be, it's basically all of the scripts from episode, no, season five, rather, um, is coming out on the 17th to kind of coincide with that. Um, so, yeah, uh, if you want to get that, you can get that on Amazon. Uh, all the links are also on the website. Thanks very much uh, for listening. Like I said, uh, until next time, take care, sleep tight.